and my initial was like, really? And then I heard the passage and I was like, yeah. yeah. And Andy got to preach at a botany this morning, so he had the pleasure as well this week. Um, we're going to look at it together. You know, all, all of it's God's word, but this is a really good one. So let me pray. Father God, we just thank you that you speak, that you're a God who speaks to your people, that you love to speak. And so we know that your words that you speak were not just words for ancient people 2,000 years ago, but your words are for us now, here today, tonight, that by your spirit, your promises that you'll speak through your word. And so we ask that you would do that and change us and make us more like Jesus. We pray in your son's name. Amen. All right, the movie is City Slickers. Who's watched it? I think it was 80s, 90s. There you go, a few poor people in morning shirts. There you go. Uh, Curly, the gritty cowboy, is riding a horse next to Mitch, the city slicker, and they're having this conversation about life. Curly says to Mitch, do you know what the secret of life is? Mitch says, no, what? Curly says, this. This. And Mitch says, your finger. Curly says, one thing. Just one thing. You stick to that and everything else don't mean anything. He actually says a swear word, but I'm not going to say it in church. Mitch says, that's great, but what's the one thing? And Curly says, that's what you've got to figure out. That's what, not very helpful at all, but that's what you've got to figure out. And that's the point of the movie, that sets up the movie. Let me ask you tonight, what is, what is your one thing? What is your one thing? Your kind of your chief purpose, your goal for living, your reason for living, the thing that gets you up in the morning and animates you. Years, book, years ago, when I was going through a tough time, I started reading a few self-help books. One of them was called The One Thing. And the whole premise of this book was that if you want uh, the secret to an extraordinary life was to go small and focus on one thing. So if you're like Google, you go with a search engine. Although it doesn't really work because I've got lots of products now, but anyway... They did best when they had one thing. The idea of the book is that life is not best trying to cover all your bases and multitasking, um, but it's actually about being single-minded in what you do. And so what would be your one thing? What is the one thing that directs what you do? Well, tonight we're actually going to see what the Apostle Paul had as his one thing. One thing that transformed his life and one thing that has the capacity to transform your life as well. Uh, if you're new with us tonight, we are working through the uh, letter to the Philippian church. Uh, this was a church that Paul the Apostle established. It was a church that uh, had become his greatest supporter. And so he, as he writes this letter to them, encourages them to persevere in the faith, and he reminds them of how helpful they've been to him as he's proclaimed the gospel throughout the ancient Near East, starting churches. He's talked about the certain hope of Jesus in the face of uh, Jewish kind of false teachers who were telling them they had to do Jewish things to be Christian. He's encouraged them to be unified by humbling, serving each other. And then last week we saw that he, uh, we saw that he, his life was all about treasuring Jesus, and that's where we get introduced to his one thing. So if you've got chapter three, verse eight, coming up on the screen to help you out, it says this. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Verse 10, he keeps going. Then I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection for, from the dead. 
What does Paul say his one thing is? His one thing is knowing Jesus and living out the resurrection life he has in him. Now, one of the things the Bible teaches and the Apostle Paul teaches in this letter is that when a person puts their trust in Jesus, it's not just that you get a ticket to heaven. A spiritual thing happens to you when you do that. When you trust in Jesus, you are united to the person of Jesus. So the story of Jesus becomes your story. So just as Jesus suffered, died, and was raised, so you suffer for living like Jesus, you die to the old life that was without Jesus, and you live a new life connected to Jesus so that your new life is spiritually united to his and it will continue into the new creation. And so as Christians, because we're united to Christ, we're simultaneously dead in a sense we're dead to the old life, but at the same time we're alive. There's this ambiguity where on one hand we are new creations in Christ Jesus, but at the same time we still have sin in our lives, don't we? We still have the old person, the dead person. And so the question is, how do we live in this ambiguity? We're new creations in Christ Jesus, we still have sin. How do we live in it? Well, Paul says he focuses on one thing. He's focuses on striving to know Jesus and live out the resurrection every day. And he does it in three ways. By wrestling, by walking, and by waiting. Wrestling, walking, waiting. Even W is the letter for tonight, as you can tell. Uh, Let's start with wrestling. Wrestle to know Christ and live out the resurrection life. Um, Looking at verse 12. He says, Not that I've already obtained this, or am already perfect. That, that what he's saying here, that I have not fully experienced knowing Jesus and the resurrection life I will have with him, that's when Jesus returns, or when I die to be with him. Verse 12, but what do I do? But I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now listen to the order there, because it's super important. If you're a person here tonight who's exploring what it means to be a follower of Jesus, sometimes you can think that to be a Christian means to you have to try to own Jesus. It's all about you and your religious efforts to try and be like him. But the order here, he says this, because Jesus owned him, he owns Jesus. But see, when if you're a believer here tonight, what happened to you when you put your trust in Jesus is not that... You reached up and found Jesus. But the reality is before you even reached up to find Jesus, Jesus reached out to find you. He grabbed you. He said, you're mine. And as a consequence, him saying, you're mine, you were actually able to grab him. That you might, he says, press on to own that relationship with him. So verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I've not fully experienced the resurrection life. That's what's going to happen when I see Jesus face to face in the new creation. So now, back here, my life is about one thing. It's about forgetting yesterday And straining forward, he says. Now, this word for straining is this idea of wrestling. It's like a 
like the word that people, when you're clenching fist, clenching your body's in a wrestling mood, and every part of your body is trying to twist the other person, so it's straining. He says, I wrestle towards the goal, he says, of the upward call, so we're talking the new creation, the goal in heaven of seeing Jesus and having resurrection life in him. I'm, I'm straining to make it to there, and I'm straining to enjoy that resurrection life now, to live out that life by faith now. Verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything, anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Now, what's interesting here is he says, it, it sounds like a uh, contradiction. He's saying the word perfect in verse 12, which he says, uh, it, this is what it means to be mature, is the same word in verse 15. So what Paul literally says here, but those who think they're mature should recognise that they're not re- mature. Those who think they're mature should recognise that they haven't matured. See, Christian maturity is not a mark that you can reach some point in your life and you tick the box, all right, I've got enough God points in this life, I can move, I can just take it easy. Yes, one day we will be perfected in new creation when we see Jesus face to face. But what Paul is saying maturity is here is not a tick box you get to eventually by getting up the steps, the scale. Maturity is how you tackle life today. It's kind of a posture to doing life. It's an attitude that involves straining to know Jesus and live out the resurrection life. What matters is, are you in the wrestle to know Jesus more and become like him? And so Paul says, the mature have this attitude about them. And if you think... But he says, and if you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you. Which I think means, if you think you're perfect already, maybe you come to church and you think you're perfect already, it's going to be a shock to you. If you think you're perfect already, God is going to reveal to you that you're not. Which he actually does, doesn't he? He tends to do that. He loves to do that. A mature Christian realises, particularly as they go along through their Christian life, the depth of their sin. Mature Christians know that they're not perfect, but they wrestle every day. They strain forward every day to know and live for Jesus more. Verse 16, only that though, let us hold true to what we have attained. Now, what have we attained? Well, it's not something that we've attained for ourselves, but it's something we've been given by Jesus. We have, in united to Christ, we've been made children of God. United to Christ, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. We've attained, we're going to talk about later, citizenship in his new creation. We're made new citizens. We're children of God. Paul says, so let us live up to what we've been made. If we're new creations in Christ Jesus, let's live like that. Let's not live like the old people. We're not anymore. Christian maturity is not just having right beliefs. It is right beliefs from the Bible that leads to a deep relationship with Jesus that shapes a daily attitude that bears the fruit of faithful living. It's right beliefs from the Bible that leads to a deep relationship with Jesus that shapes a daily attitude that bears fruit of faithful living. The mature Christian wrestles to know Jesus and live his resurrection life today. Now that sounds all good. It sounds like I've done a big rah-rah speech. Rah-rah, let's live for Jesus, let's live for Jesus. But we all know that's hard, isn't it? hard and I want to give you two reasons why I think it's hard for us firstly I think we have a tendency sometimes to live off the past 
most of us, I mean, you're a bit younger than me, okay, but as you get a little bit older, a lot of you will have times in your life where you look back and you think, they were the glory years. They were the years of spiritual vitality. Uh, Usually for those uh, with kids, it's when you didn't have your kids. For those who don't have kids, it's when you didn't have to pay a mortgage or you didn't have to have work long hours. And what I find with people, and I notice in myself, is we tend to live off those past victories, past successes in the Christian life, and think, geez, those were the days. And so in a sense, we kind of clock off growing as Christians. We kind of feel content that we kind of did that in the past as teenagers or in uni or wherever we did it. But Paul says the mature Christian forgets what is, is behind. Now, I always thought that he was just talking about his sin. He's saying, forgetting what is behind, that is, I'm forgiven now, I don't have to think about my sin. But I think what he's talking about is not just his sin in the past, but he's actually talking about his Christian success in the past. See, remember at this stage, Paul is in prison. He's a 65-year-old man and he's facing execution. Of all the people in the world who could have sat back and thought, I'm going to clock off now, I've ticked the box of being Christian, it could have been the Apostle Paul. He could have sat in that jail cell and just said, I'm just going to take it easy now. I'm going to be abusive to these prison guards. I'm going to do whatever I like because I don't really care anymore. I'm going to heaven. But what does he say? He says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says, now, even now, after 25 years of ministry, planting dozens of churches, preaching hundreds of sermons, walking thousands of kilometres, being shipwrecked, being uh, stoned by people for Jesus, being imprisoned for Jesus, having, in a sense, lived all these glorious ways for Jesus, he says, the one thing I do is I actually forget that. (laughs) And I strain forward to live out the resurrection life in this prison cell. Paul was not living off the glory of past ministry. He was, grow- he was all about growing like Christ every second he was alive. Let me ask you, are you living off past glory? Do you feel like your best years of the Christian life are behind you? Jesus is saying, forget it. Forget that and pursue me today. Strain forward today. Second reason is, I think we struggle with this idea, is we have a small view of Christian maturity. I think we can start to think that Christian maturity is simply um, knowing certain Christian teachings and doing certain Christian practices. So going to church, Bible study, prayer, we kind of have this kind of miniature view of Christian maturity. Now what we want to say about that is, although those things are critical to growing as Christians, they actually become problematic when they become the measure of your Christianity. I think one of the reasons it is because um, when you make these practices and, and, um, and what you know, the measure of your Christianity, you can start to think to be a really mature Christian, you actually have to be someone who does those things more frequently or becomes an expert in those things. And so we think the people who can be really mature Christians are the people like pastors because they've got more time on their hands to study the word and do all those things. Or we think missionaries because they're living out there for Jesus and they're telling people about Jesus all the time. And 
And that becomes a problem because not everyone is going to be a pastor. Like most people are not going to be pastors. And not people, most people are not going to be cross-cultural workers. We have amazing chefs who are Christians. We have amazing admin assistants who are Christians. We have doctors. We have vets. We have uni students. We have, we have mums and dads. And so what we can start to think is because our job kind of consumes us with most of our life, we, we actually can't become really grow, really grow as a Christian, really mature. But Paul is saying here, I wrestle to know Jesus and live like him in prison as much as when I was a preacher. When I reflect on my life, I would say one of the times when I was most radically kind of focused on how to live as a Christian was actually when I worked in this pub. It was Terry Neal's sports bar back in 88, 98, during the World Cup actually. For me, every day was about thinking about how could I live for Jesus in this pub? Prison, preacher, pastor or someone who works in a pub Christian maturity is so much bigger than knowing stuff and practices. It is, Christian maturity is a radical way of Jesus-centred living. It's about knowing every moment that he has taken ownership of you, that you might own him, that you might know him to become like him. And that that relationship with him in everything you do might flow into everything you do. Working for and with Jesus in a pub, as a pastor, as a doctor, as a vet, as an admin assistant, as a uni student, as a mum, as a dad. First thing Paul tells us, wrestle to know Christ and live out resurrection life. Second, he wants us to walk like others, to imitate others. So verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, it always sounds pretty arrogant when Paul says imitate me, doesn't it? You read that and you think, do you really? You cringe a little bit for him when he says imitate me, but... Because we can't imagine us saying it. How could Paul say it? Now, sometimes we start to think, oh, he could say it because he was a really good Christian. He had it all worked out. That's why his words are in the Bible, because he was the really good Christian, and that's why he can say it. But he, he says, keep your eyes on those who are walking to the example you have in us. And there's more people who can actually say it. But the truth is, the reason he said it is not because he was perfect. That's not what his point is he, he's saying, isn't it? What has he said? He's saying, I'm not perfect. I haven't owned this thing. I'm not perfect, and so imitate that. Imitate a man who's not perfect and yet straining forward to know Christ and live out his resurrection. Imitate my wrestle. Imitate my walking. Imitate my not looking back but looking forward every day to become more like Jesus. But not only imitate me, but imitate others who do the likewise. Walk like them. So the reason you have been placed in a church is not to just have a good friendship group. Sometimes there's so many good things about church and there are good friendship groups you can be a part of, but the reason you've been placed in a church is so that you can have a whole bunch of people around you who you can imitate and and who you don't even need to have the same job to imitate. You just look at the way they do life, the way they pursue Jesus and want to become like him, whether they work in a pub or they work in a university or whether they're a doctor or a vet, and you imitate the way they live. And so the question from this brass is, how, who are you imitating? You've been given people around you to do it. Who are you imitating? Who are you looking at and thinking, that encourages me, that inspires me? 
who live more for Jesus. But don't walk like everyone. Because look what he says here, verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So who's Paul talking about here? He's most likely talking about the dogs, the, the Jewish false teachers of chapter 3 who claimed you had to live by Jewish rules to be Christians. And so the reason they're enemies of the cross is because they say the cross isn't enough to save you, you need to do Jewish rules. Their God is their belly and they say you need to eat certain things in order to be right with God. Their glory is in their religious deeds and they say they have to do circumcision. Um, but he says that's actually to their shame. Instead of their one thing being knowing Jesus and accepting his gift of salvation, they set, he says they set their minds on earthly things, earthly power and status. And so Paul says, what does he say here? Uh, I, I now tell you even with tears. He weeps for these people. Now, why does he weep for them? Because here's the deal, that would have been him. You think about it. He's the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the Jew of Jews. If there was ever going to be someone who was going to be a Judaizer, it was going to be, uh, sorry, a, a false Jewish teacher. It was going to be Paul. And so, I don't know if you have this experience, but if you've ever walked with someone who's walked in your shoes and you've kind of been with them and then you've become a Christian and a follower of Jesus, you look back and you think, man, that guts me that they don't know Jesus. Because I know where they sit and I don't know how much they need him. Paul says, walk like those who walk like me. Thirdly, he says, wait as a citizen of heaven. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. What's the deal? Philippi was known as a Roman colony. So you had the Roman Empire and some cities were considered Roman colonies. And so if you lived in Philippi, your names were written in a book in Rome that said this person is considered a, a citizen of Rome, which had a bit of status to it. Now Paul is saying to the Philippians, you're not just citizens of Rome living in Philippi, you're actually citizens of heaven. It's like your name's written in the books up there. The new resurrection life you're living right now does not actually belong to the place you're living now. It actually belongs to the new creation. But yet you're living by faith that life now for the world to come, waiting for the King who will come. And what he says is when he comes, when Jesus returns, when you see him face to face, that resurrection life you're living but you can't see right now will become yours as your body is transformed to become like his where who you are, a child of God, a God-filled person, one united with Jesus himself, will actually be seen. That, that, that you will be seen to be given a body like the Lord Jesus. You know, you have those images of the Lord Jesus in his glorified body with the transfiguration where they go up the mountain and he reveals his glory to Peter and the disciples where he's all light. Or Paul on the Damascus road when he sees Jesus as just brightness of light or, or John when he's on the island of Patmos and he meets the resurrected Jesus and his, his glorious body 
When Jesus returns, we will see him face to face and we'll take up our citizenship in heaven and we'll, and we'll have new bodies. Friends, if you have trusted in Jesus, you're a citizen of heaven. You're a citizen of heaven, called to wait for Jesus, not living for the pleasure of now, but looking forward to the pleasure of then. Not looking for the riches of now, but looking for the riches of then. Not looking for the power and success of now, but the power and success of then. Friends, you are citizens of heaven. And that's why we live differently, you know. You live according uh, the kind of the government of the country that you're a part of, don't you? Whether you're Australian or whether you're over in Ethiopia. Friends, if you're a Christian, you, you live according to the government of heaven. Jesus is the king. 4 verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Kind of a bit of a summary. This is how you need to stand firm. Wrestling, walking, waiting. Focused on one thing. Knowing Jesus and living out resurrection life with him. Now at this point... Uh, you, I, I kind of get to this point in talk sometimes where I feel like I've said a whole bunch of stuff that you kind of know, but I've tried to get you pumped about it a little bit. Um, and I'm hoping that you'll go out and know what to do. And, and I think people sometimes just sit in the pew and they're Christians and say, what do I do, Kurt? What does that look like? What do I do tomorrow? Now, I think it's a good question. What do I do tomorrow? But I think sometimes the reason we ask that question is because what we want from the preacher on a Sunday is a really manageable little thing that I can put into my life, in my, into my complex life, that kind of doesn't take too much time, but gets me, gets me enough. We look for something manageable. And so I could say to you right now, hey, why don't you go do a Bible reading for me? Or read your Bible every day? Or why don't you go and pray with a friend? Or why don't you serve in a ministry? Or why don't you join a growth group? And they'll all be really good things for you to do. And I want to encourage you to do those things. But sometimes we can say, here's my life. And what I need to do is fill in enough Jesus things in it to kind of make myself sleep good at night that I'm actually growing as a Christian. But what I think here is what we've got to get from here is Paul is not in describing a life where you kind of do your own thing for most of it, but then you put little Jesus parts in it. God doesn't just want parts of your life. God wants everything. The life he's describing here, this straining, it's an everything life. Mature Christian living involves every fibre of your being, every moment of your life directed towards serving Jesus. Every fibre of your being, every moment of your life directed towards serving Jesus. He doesn't just want your Sunday afternoons and your growth group nights. And so how do we, how do we get our heads around that? If he wants everything that we do, how can, what can I do tomorrow? Well, here's my, here's my, I want to give you one thing. I want you to take one thing you do this week which, you, which you've never associated with Jesus so it might be a particular relationship in your life at work where you've never actually prayed about it at all. You've never talked to Jesus about it. You've never thought about what Jesus might say about it. It's just this relationship that's kind of disconnected from your Christian life. I want you to take one thing like that 
And I want you to pursue that thing this week as a follower of Jesus. Talking to him, saying, Jesus, as I'm going to chat to this person today, help me to say the right words you want me to say. If it's a business meeting, help me to have wisdom in that meeting to actually navigate the way through it. And so what I want you to do is take one thing this week and then the next thing do the other week. And what you're aiming to do is take fibre by fibre, moment by moment, bringing Jesus into the centre of it and living for him in everything. Whether you're in a pub, whether you're in a prison, whether you're a preacher. See, I remember when I was working in the pub in London, I remember thinking to myself, how can I make this honour Jesus? I remember one of the strange ways I did that was um, I thought to myself, if I want to honour Jesus, I want to show these people that I'm working hard. How am I going to do that? I'm going to get these massive kegs and I'm going to run them up the stairs instead of walking. Good for my fitness as well, you know. But it wasn't about that. I was having a conversation with Jesus. I was saying, how can I be a light in this community? I was saying, I'm going to run up the stairs with these kegs. See, it's all about making Jesus your one thing. You're one thing in everything. If this tonight you're someone who's still exploring Jesus and so you've heard me go, rah, 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 Jesus, 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 it's kind of gone a little bit over your head. I want to make it really simple at the end as well. If you're someone who's exploring Jesus, you need to know this. Jesus is real. The reason we go on about him so much is not because he's some ancient teacher of the past. It's because we actually believe he's the resurrected king living today. And so we believe Jesus is real, we believe he rose from the dead, and we believe the Bible says that the only way you can be right with this resurrected Jesus, right with God, is by putting your trust in what he did on the cross for you. That you might come to know Jesus and live one day in his new creation. If tonight you're starting to think to yourself, I actually think I believe that, then please come and have a chat. We'd love to, we'd love to chat more. But for everyone else, What's your one thing? Is it Jesus? Paul says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let me pray. Father, sometimes we cut down the life that you call us to, into this really neat-looking thing, which involves a, a bunch of just Christian practices and the occasional um, visit to church and occasional Bible reading. and Well, sometimes we try to make it even bigger, Lord, and we try to do it better than that. But, Lord, the life you want from us is everything. Every fibre of our being, every moment of our lives, you want us to live for you. You want us to talk to you. You want us to... You want us to live as citizens of heaven. And so, Father, help us. Help us to not live off the glory of the past. Help us to live moment by moment, day by day, taking every thought and every moment captive to what Jesus would have us do, doing life. We pray in his name. Amen.